Well, let's go back to God's Word and now continue in our worship, hearing what He has to say to us this morning. I want to take a break from our exposition of Ecclesiastes and go to the New Testament. It's an important topic that our church needs to hear about regularly. The topic is discipleship. And specifically, the question I want to pose to each of you today is, are you a true disciple of Christ? Are you a true disciple of Christ? We've been talking about discipleship as we work through Ecclesiastes. And I said there that all the wisdom that King Solomon brings before us is something we should take in. And as believers, we should live it out. But it's important to examine ourselves to ask if we are indeed disciples of Christ. And for that, I want you to turn to Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, verses 46 through 49. And let me just read the passage to you this morning. Jesus is teaching here, and he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He's like a man building a house who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it, and immediately it collapsed, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's ask the Lord's help in applying this passage this morning. Lord, we do ask your help that we would indeed examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith, to see if we're true disciples. Help me as a preacher to proclaim your truth here, to illustrate it, to apply it. Lord, I pray for my listeners that they would be good, expository listeners. That they would be doers of the word. That they would hear the words of Jesus here and apply it to their own life. Examine their hearts and minds to see whether they're in the faith. Whether they're truly following Christ. That's our prayer today, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the greatest expository preachers of the 1900s, Martin Lloyd-Jones, grew up in a Christian home. He went to church from the time he was born. He was part of the Calvinistic Methodist church movement. He was baptized as an infant. At the age of 15, he professed faith and he took communion at his home church every time it was offered. At 18, he went to medical school in London. And he was the head of a Sunday school program at his denomination's church there in London, a large Sunday school program. Here's what he said. For many years, I thought I was a Christian, when in fact I was not. It was only later that I came to see that I had never been a Christian and became one. But I was a member of a church and attended my church and its services regularly. I strayed, I got lost, and I grew tired on many paths. But I was always aware that the hound of heaven was on my tracks. At last he caught me and led me to the way that leads to life. Lord Jones came to see that 
he was a wretched sinner before God. That even though he'd grown up knowing all these facts, it didn't automatically make him a Christian. He knew that he was play acting as a Christian. That he was faking it. He was not truly following the words of Christ. So later in life, he's commenting on this and he says, Our churches are crowded with people, nearly all of whom take the Lord's Supper without a moment's hesitation. And yet, do you imagine for a moment that all those people believe that Christ died for them? He says, well then, you ask, why are they church members? Why do they pretend to believe? The answer is, they're afraid to be honest with themselves. I shall feel much more ashamed, he says, to all eternity for the occasions on which I said that I believed in Christ when in fact I did not. This is a major problem in the American church, really anywhere in the world, but I think it's more popular in America to be part of Christianity, to look like a Christian, to try to walk like a Christian, to be part of a Christian church, to be part of a Christian organization, and not truly live out the commands of Christ, not truly be born again so that you can live out the commands of Christ. You see, in the Bible, Christ always says there's two groups of people. He's always dividing people into two groups. Jesus says, he who is not with me is against me. There's no in between. There's not a third group. There's not people transitioning. You're either with me or against me. Now, some against him do eventually get transferred into the category of being with him. But at any moment in time, there's only two groups. Jesus says, he who does not gather with me scatters. Jesus is not going to let you sit on the fence. He's not going to let people who say, yes, I'm a disciple, just sit on the fence. He says, better be hot or cold in the book of Revelation. I mean, having a purpose, better for you to have a purpose. Either you're on your own track or you're on Christ's track. He says, or I will spit you out of my mouth. There's only two groups, only two groups of people. Jesus says, do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Yes, there's peace offered to his people, to those who trust in him. But that's going to divide families, divide businesses, divide organizations, divide churches. There's the true gospel and there's the false religion, the false gospel. There's those who are poor in spirit, those who are self-righteous. Always two groups when Jesus teaches. Those who love their enemies and pray for them versus those who hate their enemies. False teachers versus true teachers. True disciples from false disciples, which is our text here today. There's only two kinds of people in the world. So how do we know which group we're a part of? How do we know? How do we figure that out? Well, there are many texts of Scripture that we could go to, but this is a good one, a really good one here, because it talks about our foundation. What does our foundation look like? If we claim to be a Christian What's our foundation? Jesus shows us here in the passage how we might know. First of all, in verse 46, he gives us the test of discipleship. He gives us a question. Jesus is great at asking questions. And here he says, every professing believer can test themselves by examining their obedience to the word. You can test yourself just looking at your obedience. And if you want assurance in the faith, the first thing is you need to ask yourself if you believe in the promises of Scripture, if you believe in the gospel. Secondly, 
Are you living out the commands of Christ? So this is not the only way to ask yourself if you are a believer. But it is one way. And it is an important one in today's society. It's an important one back then because all these people were following Jesus. But not all of them were saved. Hundreds of disciples followed him. And at some point, they turned away. Here's the question. Verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Who's he talking to? He's talking to all those who are following him at this time. All those who claim that they are one of his disciples. A disciple is a learner who is taught by a teacher. To be a disciple of Christ means that you're learning from him and you're copying his life. Back then, you would follow a teacher around from place to place and you would do what he did. He would teach you how to live and you would live that way. And he says that they're calling him Lord, Lord. It's the double use of his title here. Very emphatic, in other words. There's a high level of emotion here. Lord, Lord, you're my Lord. And he says, why do you call me that with such emotion, such nearness? When you don't obey my commands. He says, you do not do what I say. Now, he's not expecting perfection. He knows our hearts. He's not expecting that that they would live out exactly everything and never sin. That's why he taught them in the Lord's Prayer, that they would confess their sins to the Lord, and they would ask for forgiveness regularly. No, we're all sinners saved by grace. You're either a sinner here not saved by grace, or you're a sinner saved by grace. But you still sin even if you're saved. But he leaves us with passages that that help us to come to him and ask for regular forgiveness. Even though we can't live a perfect life as a Christian, true disciples are called to be doing what he commands. Your lifestyle, your pattern should look like the commands that Christ tells us to do. They should look like Christ. Holiness. Faithfulness. Love for the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. But those who claim to be Christian, but don't live like it, they're a contradiction. They're a hypocrite. A hypocrite is somebody who presents one face to you, in church, for example, or in family gatherings. But really, that's not who they are. They're presenting a a false representation of themselves. They're pretenders. They're imposters. There's an old spiritual song. You can look this up on YouTube. But I like the title of it. it. It points to this fact. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. Everybody talking about heaven ain't going there. And here's one of the lines. Well, I read about the streets of gold and I read about the throne. Not everybody calling Lord, Lord is going to see that heavenly home. There's a lot of people talking about heaven today. Heaven's a very popular topic. It's a favorite American pastime. In fact, if you claim to visit heaven and come back, you can make millions of dollars in book sales. Everybody wants to talk about heaven. There's a lot of people talking about heaven, but they aren't all going there. J.C. Ryle, the famous preacher, said, Obedience is the only sound evidence of saving faith, and that the talk of the lips is worse than useless if it's not accompanied by sanctification of the life. You might have read Pilgrim's Progress. You familiar with Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan? And Pilgrim is on this journey to the celestial city, to heaven. And along the way, he meets people. 
Many of them are trying to distract him. Many of people are trying to pull him back. And he meets a man named Mr. Talkative. And Mr. Talkative is really great at talking about the Christian life. He talks and talks and talks, but there's no true faith in his heart. He only knows how to talk about the Christian life and the Christian teachings, but he's never experienced them for himself. And it turns out, by the time you're done with that section on Mr. Talkative, he's really from the city of destruction, and his goal is to trap Pilgrim and his friend Faithful. There's men and women today that love to talk about heaven. They love to hear about heaven, but they're not all going there. Let's go to Matthew, Matthew chapter 7. And this is Matthew's account of the same sermon that we're looking at in Luke. It's called the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, the Sermon on the Plain in Luke. And Matthew includes some words that are not in Luke, some words that Jesus spoke, but Matthew recorded from a different perspective, Matthew 7 verse 21. And you'll see it sounds very similar. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who's in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? In other words, they they had some sort of ministry, whether it was true or not. we, We can't say for certain here, but It was a kind of ministry they called Christian. They seemed to be able to do certain miracles even. And he says, I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice, what? Lawlessness. The issue is not, oh Jesus, look what I've done for you. Jesus says, the issue is, did you do what I commanded you to do? You don't get to pile up your trophies and take them to Jesus and say, let me into heaven. You claim to be a Christian, then you'll do what Jesus says. But these people in Matthew 7, they're they're people who had false assurance their whole life. That's a fearful passage. Their whole life they thought they were saved based on what they did. And yet they get to the gates of heaven, or we might say the final judgment more accurately, and they are turned away and sent to wrath. Why? Because they were workers of lawlessness. They loved lawlessness. They lived the way they wanted to live. And then they did a few things in Jesus' name and thought that was good enough. False assurance. People who go to church, maybe even regularly, they might even get in as a member, but they do not live for Christ. Often we see objections to this teaching. Even though it's here in Scripture, we see objections today in Christianity to this. People say, only God knows the heart. Don't judge Only God knows the heart. This is what I was taught very early as a new believer. I was part of a big seeker-friendly church, and they said that we ought to assume everybody's a Christian. And only when somebody says they're not a Christian, then you should evangelize them. Only God knows the heart. Is Is that true? Yes. God knows everyone's heart. You can't fool God. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. But is not Jesus God? Does He not know your heart? And is he not speaking in this text to all of us? Test yourselves. Imagine you're going up to a man or maybe a woman, and they're married, but they're spending time with somebody else's spouse. All the time you see them, they're with somebody else's spouse. And you said to them, that's not right, you shouldn't be doing that. And they say, only God knows my heart. You would laugh at that. 
You would laugh if every time you saw somebody they weren't with their wife, this man was with another man's wife. Because it's obvious. You can see it. And you wouldn't take that as an excuse. So it's really not an objection. Of course God knows our heart. That's why he gave us the Bible. That's why it convicts our heart. Others might say, well, love hopes all things. Aren't you supposed to just assume a person's a believer if they say that? 1 Corinthians 13, love hopes all things. I would say, yes, we are to believe them when they say that. We are to believe them until we start seeing fruit. And how does that fruit come out? Is it bad fruit or is it good fruit? And when there is some sin in their life, how do they respond when they're admonished and corrected? Do they repent? Do they confess their sin? Jesus said in Luke 6.44, For each tree is known by its fruit. Of course, we believe their testimony until their works show otherwise. And then we began to counsel, correct, and see how they respond. Some people say, well, this sounds like works-based salvation. This sounds like that we are telling people to obey Jesus so they can get into heaven. This is not how you become a disciple. See, that's where people get confused. What's the context here of this passage? They already claim to be his disciple. So now he's teaching them about discipleship. Here's how you know whether you're a true or false disciple. He's not giving instructions on how to be saved. There are other places where he talks about that. This is how you live as a disciple. You obey Christ's commands. But why do we even care? What, what do we care about others and if they're saved or not. Well, I hope you care a lot because you're a Christian and you're supposed to be evangelizing. You have children, many of you, in your homes. You work with people who say they're Christians. And you really need to know, is this a person I should be discipling? Or is this somebody who's got the gospel wrong? And I need to evangelize them, tell them the gospel for the first time. How can you even do ministry for someone, with someone, unless you know where they stand? You need to know. Once you get to know people better, you can start asking them questions. It's important. And that's why Jesus preached such a message. But we're so scared to preach this message in churches today. We're so scared to ask others and question them, talk with them, counsel them. I would say this. If you have a a person that you're concerned about and they're not living the life of a Christian, just read them this passage. The words of God are enough to convict somebody's heart. Just read this passage and see where the conversation goes. Let's not run away from the teachings of Jesus here. The second point here in the passage, the second main point, is he gives an example of a true disciple. Not just an example, but the example of a true disciple. A true disciple does the word of God. They do the word of God in their lives. And that deepens their foundation in Christ. They live out the word of God in their lives. So he says that clearly in verse 47. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he's like. Now notice he gives us three verbs there, three actions, three steps. First, a person comes to him. That's the example of a true disciple. They've got to come to him first. People come to Jesus to hear what he says. People came to Jesus in those days 
to see miracles performed, to find out if he's the king who can throw out the Romans. Is this the one we've heard so much about? Is this a famous guy from Galilee? They come to him for wisdom. Everybody likes a good teacher, a good philosopher. Teach us some wisdom, Jesus. Some come to him for the right reasons. Many for the wrong reasons. Some even come to have their sins forgiven. People today still come to Jesus for various reasons. They come to him to hear the words of God. They come to the Bible to see what Jesus has to say, to hear it for the first time. But sometimes they come to him for the wrong reasons today as well. They come to Jesus so he'll fix their life. So this little problem they have over here, Jesus might patch up. They've got marriage problems, financial problems, maybe problems with their children. Maybe they want to kick the drug habit. Maybe they're an alcoholic. But there's more to true saving faith than just wanting to use Jesus as a patch. Jesus isn't the the little cherry on top. We built our whole life. We built the whole ice cream sundae. And we just need one little piece on the top called Jesus. That's not the Bible's teaching. Not at all. We'll get to that in a moment. Second verb, it says they hear his word. So they come to him for whatever reason. Then they hear what he has to say. He's teaching. He's preaching. It's the main reason he was here for three years in his earthly ministry. Teaching the crowds, teaching the people. Because the words of Jesus bring eternal life. He's proclaiming the gospel. He hasn't even died on the cross yet. And he's proclaiming good news. Look to me, he says. Look to me and be saved. Live this way if you are claiming to be my follower. His words include the gospel, the good news, and all the commands he gave his followers. And we still hear his words today. People come, they come to church. They hear Jesus through the text. They meet with you as a friend. They hear Jesus, hopefully, if you're telling them the gospel. They read books. They do all these things where they can read scripture and hear from Jesus. They go to Christian bookstores. And hopefully they get a good book on Jesus. Yet coming to him and hearing does not save you. If you stop there, you're not saved. Nor does it sanctify you. If you're already saved, if you just say, I see what you say, Jesus, I'm done. I'm going home today, going back to my old life. That's not sanctification. The third thing is the point of this passage. They act on them. They act on the words that he gave, the teaching. Coming and hearing are not enough. We must respond. We must respond. We must respond with obedience. We must do what he tells us to do. It's not enough just to come to church today and listen to God's word preach. That's a great thing. That's important. You should go to a biblical church that preaches God's word. But if you go home and forget everything, what good did that do? He says you must act on them. You must act on these words. The Christian life is not passive. You're not just sitting around Watching the show. This is why churches today can fill so many seats by putting on a show. If you want to call them churches. They put on this big show and you're entertained and you go home and go back to your life. It's no big deal. Check the box. I went to church on Sunday. No, you've got to be an expository listener. 
You go hear a biblical sermon, that's great. As rare as and hard as it is to find a church that preaches the Bible these days, if you find one, stay there. But then be an expository listener. Take in the word and do what it says. If it says trust in Christ alone, then do that. If it says repent of your sin, do that. Give your whole life over to following God's word. You say you've given your life to Christ. Now do it by following God's word. In your family, in your job, in your hobbies, your entertainment, everything. Everything. Not just for an hour on Sunday. Serve him. You're one of his. Serve him sacrificially. Do his word. Live an obedient Christian life. Grow in the faith that you profess. Spread the gospel to those who are lost. If you look at James 1.22, it says, Prove yourselves doers of the word. Not merely hearers who delude themselves. And they think they've really done something just by hearing it. My ear picked up some sounds that went in my brain, and I've done so much good for God today. No, you've got to be doers of the word. That's what James was addressing. The church that he wrote to was not doing what they were supposed to do according to Scripture. Look forward in the Gospel of Luke and see what else Jesus has to say. Go to Luke 8, 15. He's telling this parable here about the soils. And he tells them when they go out, there's various soils. And you need to be expecting that when you proclaim the gospel. And Luke 8, 15, but the seed in the good soil. These are the ones who have heard the word in an honest and good heart. Meaning God had changed their heart so they could hear the word. It's all happening in an instant, of course. And they hold it fast. And they bear fruit with perseverance. They bear good fruit and it perseveres. They continue to do so throughout their life. Go to Luke 8.20. 8.20, we see a similar teaching here. And it was reported to him, Your mother and your brothers are standing outside wishing to see you. But he answered and said to them, My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. He loved his family, but he said, if you want to really be part of my family, my spiritual family, you hear it and you do it. Now look at Luke eleven twenty seven. While Jesus was saying these things, one of the women in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. But he said, on the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and observe it. As blessed as Mary was to carry him for nine months, to birth him into the world. He says, more blessed, even better, is the person who hears the word of God and observes it, does it, lives it out. Gospel of John, same thing, John 14, 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. Do you love Jesus? It's the one who keeps his commandments. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. You want to be loved by the Father? Jesus says. And you love Jesus? Keep his commandments. And Jesus says, I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Not that you can earn your salvation through that. But if you already say you're saved, then do as he commands. John 14, 23, same thing. Jesus answered and said to this man, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. My Father will love him. And we will come to him and make our abode with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words. And the word which you hear is not mine, 
but the fathers who sent me. We've got to hear them, take them in, and live them out in our lives. It's very simple. This is not calculus. It's not even algebra. It's like basic one plus one equals two. Hear the words. You claim to be a believer. You take them in. You hear the words. You live them out in your life. And now Jesus gives us an illustration, an example. I will show you who he's like. So when Christ says he will show us what a person looks like who obeys him, we better pay attention. What does this look like, Jesus? And he's like a man building a house. Now, Jesus knew about home building. He was a builder. We often think he's a, he was a carpenter. But the, the name used in Scripture, the Greek word for what Jesus did, what Joseph did, was just a builder, whether that's a table or a house. It both required wood and stone when you went to build a house. And often when a man was getting married, what he had to do in that year that he was waiting to be married is build his own house. And he might get help from people like Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, to design and help him build a home. So man's building a house, and he realizes he needs a strong foundation. A house is only as strong as its foundation. The topsoil in Israel is hard-packed. It's hard-packed dirt. It dries out from the heat. And the sand or the dirt feels very firm because it's hard-packed. But what happens when it gets wet? It loosens up. It flows away if there's enough rain. He dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. Now, there's really three verbs. Your translation might have all three of them here. The NASB only says dug deep and laid a foundation. But there's three verbs in the Greek. Literally, he dug and he dug deeper and then he laid a foundation. He's serious about building a solid structure on which to build his house. He dug in the ground deeper. This man's searching for something firmer to build his house on than just soil. He needs a deep foundation. And he lays this foundation on a rock, the, literally the bedrock here. A massive rock formation that will not move around under the house. Now here we have a lot of limestone under the ground, so we don't get a lot of movement. But in many parts of our country, there's a lot of movement in the soil. When I lived in North Texas, you had to water your house all summer on the foundation so the soil would stay up nice and close. Because if you let it dry out, that clay soil would pull away and there'd be an inch there all around your foundation and the house could move. And eventually you develop cracks and you can see them when you go in the house going up the walls. Well, this man wants to build a strong foundation and when the flood occurred, the torrent, it burst against that house. It's not just a flash flood. The man's not just building his house on a dry creek bed. It rains a little bit like around here and we get a, a short flash flood. And you get that text on your phone. It says it's going to be a flash flood warning. It's not what he's talking about here. This is a river. Literally the torrent in the NASB is a river that breaks outside its banks. Nice peaceful river. And then one day it just bursts outside its banks and comes right at your house. You might remember a few years ago, the San Marcos River flooded. People were staying in their house on the river. Sometime a whole family would get washed away down river, all killed, all drowned. This is a massive torrent, 
not just a little rainstorm. And Jesus says the torrent could not shake it because it had been well built. It had been well built. The foundation was solid. It was deep. He's talking about who and what you build your life on. Isaiah 28, 16 says, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. You believe in Christ? You show good fruit by living out His commands? You're building your house on the bedrock, Jesus Christ. Not just the foundation of the house, but the bedrock stone that's as far down as you can go. And the point here is how we build our life on that bedrock. That's what he's getting at. A true disciple builds their house rightly on the bedrock of Christ Jesus. People sometimes say, you know, my life was a mess until I added Jesus to my life. It's not the right way to think about it. He's not the cherry on top. He's not the little piece that fits the puzzle. He's not the thing that fills the hole in your heart, like some people say. He's the bedrock. You don't have a life unless you have it built on Christ. Jesus, His words even, are not additions to our life. They're the foundation. They're the foundation. I remember when I first realized this, it was, it was eye-opening for me. Before I went into ministry, I was thinking, where is Christ supposed to be in our life? Is he just an addition? Is Christianity, is Christ just something I do sometimes? Is it part of my life? No, it's the foundation. It's everything in my life. There's no part of my life that's not supposed to be Christian. That's not supposed to be biblical. The lesson here is build your house well. To build your house well means to act on the words of Jesus. Look, he says the the torrent didn't shake the house because it had been built well. It had been built well. The house represents your life, how you live, who you follow. The actions you take as a believer that build up your spiritual life. But what's underneath that? That's the foundation that you've laid between the bedrock and what you see on top of the soil. What's underneath the house? You can't see when you look at someone's life. You can't always see what they're doing, how they're living out Christ. They could have a solid foundation and it will show over time that their house is not being shaken. What does it really mean to do the words of Jesus? If I had to boil it down into three things, three things. You believe what he tells you to believe. There's a lot of things to believe in the Bible, but he gives us his spirit and if we're saved, we believe them. We don't need 25 liberal scholars to teach us what the Bible says. We believe them because they're there. Maybe we don't understand them well. Maybe we need somebody to help, a teacher, a preacher, pastor. But we believe them. And that includes all the sins that he lists in the Bible that God condemns. That's right doctrine. That's orthodoxy. It also means, secondly, that you do the actions He commands. So not only do you believe, but you live out your life according to His commands, according to those beliefs. That's right living. Orthopraxy. Orthodoxy, what you believe. Orthopraxy, how you live it out. 
Don't just focus on actions. You've got to have the right beliefs. Thirdly, you confess your failures in not doing the other two. If there's some doubt, if there's some lack of faith that you have in the Bible, you just confess that to God and you repent and you believe what it says. More often, if we fail at living out His commands, we confess it and we ask for His forgiveness. So you believe what He tells you to believe. You do the actions He commands. And when you fail at that, you confess your sins and ask for forgiveness. So what's your foundation? What are you building on today? What's your foundation? We know the bedrock is Christ. But is your foundation built on that bedrock? Did you dig down deep and lay a solid foundation? Are you obeying his words? Not everyone who claims to be a Christian builds their spiritual house rightly. And so that's the last example here, the third point, the example of a false disciple. Some are not true disciples. The house looks the same. There's two homes. They look exactly the same. One has a solid foundation. The other does not. You can't tell that right away when you first look at them. A false disciple is one who does not obey the words of Christ. Therefore, they cannot stand in the day of judgment. Verse 49. The one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. There's no foundation. For whatever reason, doesn't say why. Maybe the man was in a hurry when he built his house. And the analogy here, maybe he had no time for digging deep. I don't have time for that Bible stuff. I don't have time for that church stuff. Who has time for that? You're a serious Christian? I don't don't have time for that. I just go to church when I'm supposed to. He did not have a deep foundation. Maybe he had false teachers who told him the wrong way to build. Maybe he liked the attention of building a house, but not the hard work. For whatever reason, this man built without any foundation. This is the rocky soil in the parable of the soils. Remember that in in Luke 8, we looked at the good soil, but there's also a rocky soil. The seed falls on the rocky soil. And when they hear, they receive the word with joy. And these have no firm root. They believe for a while. In time of temptation, they fall away. They turn away. They've tried it for a little while. Didn't work out for them, you know. Christ didn't work out for them. There's no foundation. There's no digging deep. There's no digging deeper. There's no laying of the foundation. He thought he had a foundation on this house that he built. That ground looks firm. I'm just going to build right there, not dig at all. And the torrent burst against it. This huge flood of the river burst against it, and immediately it collapsed. The same torrent hit both houses. But one stood strong and one collapsed. It caved in, literally it collapsed. It's caved in, crumpled up like a piece of paper. And it was immediate. It wasn't a slow moving of the house eventually that took it down. A raging river came down and wiped it out. Before the flood, two houses, two people, they looked identical. Sometimes people look like they're growing in the Christian faith. They look like They're the most passionate believer ever. And then you hear later that they've turned away. Or that they've run off into some grievous sin. And they still claim to be a Christian. But there is no way that their life looks like that. 
They may have everyone fooled. Judas had everyone fooled. None of the other 11 disciples really suspected Judas, did they? He was right there. He saw all the miracles Jesus did. He listened to all the sermons Jesus preached. And yet, he wasn't a true disciple. And it didn't show until right before Jesus was crucified. A day is coming when their lack of foundation will be exposed. Bible scholar Leon Morris says, He may have every outward appearance of respectability, and he may be noted for his religious observances, but lacking a foundation, he is nothing. Nothing. And Jesus says the run of that house was great. It's not enough to tell us the house collapsed, but he says the run was great. What's his point here? Well, it really depends on what the flood represents. Some would think that it just represents the storms of life. And there is some truth to that viewpoint, not in this text, but just in general. If your life is founded on Christ, you're going to withstand the storms of life better. God is our rock. He's our fortress. He's our strong tower. And when the devil attacks you and when the world attacks you, and even when your flesh tempts you, you have that strong foundation. There was a famous song in 1990s, uh, Two Sets of Joneses, that came on Christian radio, for those of you who were believers back then. And it takes this view that there's two groups and one can't stand up to the pressures of life and the other one can. But really, this is the final judgment. The torrent is the final judgment. Why? Well, in Matthew, he says, In that day, the day of the Lord, the day of judgment, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. We looked at that passage. Also, in Romans 6, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin? so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? If we've, if we've died to sin, we can't live in sin our whole life. That goes along with what Jesus said in Matthew. But just look here in Luke. The ruin was great. The house collapsed. It imploded. There's nothing left. Total destruction is what he's saying. It's totally destroyed. It's not a small tremor that just shook the house. A little rain that challenged the house's stability. The house is gone. It no longer exists. This is the final judgment. It cannot stand when God comes to judge. The wrath of God wipes it out. That ought to scare us here today. We ought to examine ourselves. If the wrath of God, if the final judgment was today, would your house stand? Would you stand? Where are you at with the Lord here? This is something we want to put off. I'll figure that out next year, 20 years from now. I'll live my whole life enjoying what I want, and then I'll worry about this. You don't know if you'll survive today. Remember the family that was wiped out by the flood? There was a time in our church when I was preaching through the Gospel of Luke, and they were working on the highway here, and somebody was dying right out here on this little stretch every week. People were getting killed because you'd have to stop, and then here comes a big truck that would smash you. Those people didn't know that was going to happen. We don't know when the Lord is going to take us. We have to ask ourselves, are we building on a strong foundation built on the bedrock or on sand? There's a lot of sand today that people are building on. I was baptized at a young age. 
My father was a deacon. My father was an elder. People trust in their parents somehow to get them into heaven. I went to Grace Bible Church with my parents from the time I was born. Don't let your kids say that. Tell them the truth. Some people have the sand of cheap grace, easy believism. Just say the name of Jesus. Just say Jesus' name. Automatically, you're into heaven. You get a free ticket. I was in a jail ministry in California, and we were invited to come and watch this great baptism going on with the chaplains, and they were baptizing all the prisoners. And they gave a little story, and they said, close your eyes, bow your head, and if you want to be baptized, just raise your hand. And that means you believe in Jesus. I didn't look around, but afterwards, a bunch of people must have raised their hand because the line doubled of the people getting baptized. You don't even have to believe anymore. Just, just raise a hand. Some people say, of course I'm saved. Don't you know I grew up as a Baptist? I grew up as a Lutheran. I grew up as a Presbyterian. Those things don't save you. doesn't matter what your parents believe as much as it matters what you believe. Now we thank God for godly parents who are teaching and training their children. But you need to put that into practice, children. If you're here today listening, put that into practice. Hear the word of God. Believe it. Do it. Are you building your house on Christ and his words? Now's the time. Before the floodwaters come, you don't get a second chance. Paul says, you die and then comes judgment. If you're not a believer, then comes judgment. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Build your life on what he's taught and you'll see him. Say you trust in him, but not really, and show it with the bad fruit, you'll see judgment. So my prayer today is that you will all build wisely on a deep, solid foundation. You've heard the truth. Let's put it into practice. Lord, we do thank you for this text. It is an important one on the Sermon on the Mount. You proclaimed it, Jesus. You gave it to your people. Let us not just say we're disciples, Lord, but let us live it out with a zeal, with a passion, so that no one even has a question about whether we're saved. And certainly we know in our own hearts that we are producing good fruit. Put us around people who will be honest with us, a church that will tell us when we sin, and correct us and discipline us, and let us build a deep, well-dug foundation and a house that will stand. We pray this, we pray this, Jesus, for your holy name's sake. Amen.